is my privilege, my joy to be up here with you. And we are wrapping up our study of our core values this morning. We have been digging in uh, well into all six of them. Today is number six. We've explored empowerment, authenticity, reproduction, transformation, less selfness. And today we talk about our last core value, the last kind of guiding principle, biblically originated ideological values uh, that are uh, where we plant our flag. This is how we do things around here at Community Reform Church. Uh, every church is a little bit different in their core values, but all have a biblical kind of focus and bent. Today we're talking about something that we assume in an approach to life. And honestly, this is almost a, a fundamental one, the one that, that creates uh, a mentality, a circumstance, an assumption that would almost open the door for every one of the other values to kind of take root and live in us. Uh, today, we're talking about the mindset that faith, our experience of faith, our experience, our, our faith life, that we are on a journey together and with the Lord. Um, so I'm going to read uh, what our core value is from our website. Uh, what we've written down is uh, what we mean by faith is a journey. And then we're going to unpack some scripture that uh, really illustrates that well and, and kind of gives us a springboard into our topic for today. So this is what we mean when we say this. We believe that faith is a journey. So we will stumble. We will grow. We will misunderstand and fail we will succeed. Uh, sometimes we will be faithful, and sometimes we will falter. But all of these experiences are used by God to make us more authentic, reproducible, transformed, and selfless. No one's a good Christian. We're simply Christian or not. And God is working, continuously working, to complete the good work that he has already begun in us. That's what we mean when we say faith is a journey. Now, let's unpack it. We to unpack it, we're going to be talking about a guy we read about in Acts. We, we meet him for the very first time in Acts. His name is Saul. Later on, we hear him called Paul. Uh, FYI, Jesus didn't change his name, didn't assign him a new name like he did with, uh, with Peter. Um, it just, it, he was kind of known by both. And initially, he was primarily known and talked about as Saul. And then later on, he's referred to as Paul. Um, we meet him first early on in Acts at the stoning of the first martyr. Uh, a man named Stephen was being stoned to death. And Saul was there, present, watching. He was the coat check guy. Uh, people laid their cloaks at his feet. And he would watch over them while this was happening, and he seemed to take a shining to this punishment of Christians, and he made it his life's goal from that point on, it seems, to help Christians experience the cost of following Jesus. It's probably the nicest way to say it. So we're going to be talking about his conversion, the moment when Jesus meets him for real and how it changes his life. Uh, before we get into that, uh, if you'll join me, let's, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for, for being here, meeting us in this moment, for uh, speaking. Help us to hear well and listen well to the word that you have given us. 
illuminate truth and show us who you are so that we can know better who we are. We pray this, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this moment, we're talking about this moment when Saul encounters Jesus happens in Acts chapter 9. It starts at verse 1. Hear this, God's word. Meanwhile, great word, meanwhile. It means at the same time as. So at the same time that the the new church was being persecuted and scattered, at the same time that God's people were going out and they were sharing with others salvation and healing and deliverance and great signs were being shown and evil spirits were being cast out and the power of God was on display in the world and baptisms were occurring while all of this is happening. Meanwhile, at the same time, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if Saul found any there who belonged to the way, any Christians in Damascus, whether men or women, that he might take them as prisoners back to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, so he must have gotten the letters he wanted, and it was important enough to him that he was willing to walk several weeks, about 150 miles, all the way from Jerusalem to Damascus. On, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Still, flat on his face, he says, Who are you, Lord? Well, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now, get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground. When he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they, the men traveling with him, led him by the hand the rest of the way into Damascus. And for three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Meanwhile, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. So yes, there were people of the way in Damascus. And a guy named Ananias hears the Lord. The Lord says to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him, Go, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias. He's seen you come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Um... Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. He did get those letters. He is here and our lives are in danger. What are you doing? And the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument 
to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias went to the house, and he entered it, and he placed his hands on Saul. He placed his hands on the man who was there to kill him. He placed his hands on the man who likely had, with joy in his heart, hurt people that Ananias loved. He placed his hands on Saul, and he said to him, Brother Saul. He called him brother. Brother Saul. The Lord. Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, Jesus has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine the things going on in this guy's head as he's saying these words, as he's being obedient? Can you imagine what else he's thinking? I'm not going to mention to you, Saul, how many people you've hurt. I'm not going to mention all the pain you've caused. I am deeply afraid for my life in this moment. I'm struggling to believe you're worthy of this. And really, all I want to do is pull out my sword and take you out. But my Lord Jesus has commanded me to bless you, and I will obey him even if it doesn't make any sense to me. And immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again, and he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And that's all we ever hear about Saul ever again. Because after becoming Christian, there's nothing else happened in his life. The end. Ha! Quickest sermon ever. No. That's a ridiculous statement. No. We know better than that. Now, if you are not familiar with the rest of the story, let me just quickly recap what happens from this moment in the life of Saul. Uh, he uh, has a newfound purpose in life. He's off to proclaim the gospel. He heads away from Damascus all the way back 150 miles to Jerusalem where he's going to meet with the church leaders. He's not going back to the chief priests. He's going to meet with the leaders of the church. Now, I would imagine, wouldn't you, that they're nervous about this. Saul has been a very dangerous man to church people, but they do meet. They end up meeting, and the meeting goes well. And then he goes back to his hometown, Tarsus, and then after that, he heads off to a place called Antioch, and it's in Antioch. He stays for a little while. He starts preaching and teaching. It's almost like he's kind of getting his, 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 his evangelist legs underneath him. And from there, he launches into his missionary journeys. In fact, Antioch is, his, is where he ends up after every one of his missionary journeys. He would go off on a journey, spend several years out there, and come back to Antioch. And then he would bounce back out into another couple-year-long missionary journey and then come back to Antioch. And he would do that. He would do that three times. And on those three multi-year-long trips, he would go out and, and plant new churches and heal people and speak truth that would really get other people riled up. Like, he didn't make a lot of friends. Uh, he made some, but he also made a lot of enemies. Um, and then he would be flogged and jailed. He would be miraculously, miraculously freed from jail. Uh, he would run for his life. He would write letters back to the churches that he had planted 
He ends up getting arrested for the crime of following Jesus, gets shipwrecked on his way to trial in Rome. He spends years under house arrest in Rome, continuing to write letters and preaching while he's under house arrest in Rome. Then he gets set free from that house arrest, but then they grab him again, they arrest him, and then he experiences the same thing that Stephen experienced when we first meet Saul at the very beginning of his story that we know. And he is killed for following Jesus. Oh, 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 and don't, don't forget, those letters he wrote, those are most of the books of our New Testament. Scripture, God's word for God's people. And, and, and in those letters, he talks about how he has grown up and matured, what he has learned and grown in as a disciple of Jesus. And we learn, we learn that Paul, at this point, Paul uh, was, he had to experience a lot of difficulties, things that, that, that weren't what he expected. He had a lot of plans that never came to fruition. We, he planned certain trips and then circumstances would come and he would just have to roll with it. He didn't get to go to Rome initially like he had planned he should, and he didn't get to pass through Macedonia like he planned he wanted to. He didn't go to Spain like he told people that he really wanted to do, and he didn't get back to Corinth as many times as he wanted to, which, because he had told people he was coming back to Corinth a certain number of times, he didn't do it. So people started grumbling, well, can you even trust a guy who can't even follow through on his word? And he goes on this journey where he, he starts as one thing and becomes something new. And he has plans. He has ideas of how things are supposed to go. And he shares those things, but he holds on to them loosely because ultimately there's only one thing that matters, that he is heading toward pursuing glory and presence, the, 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 the presence of and to be with his Father in heaven and, and, and with his Savior, Jesus Christ. And anything else, he, just, he knows he can't control it. He is going to be along for the ride. His life of faith, was a journey. And it illustrates something powerful if we're willing to adopt it, an approach to a life of faith, an approach to what it means to follow Jesus Christ that contradicts a couple of lies that we're told as people or, or even things that we really want to be true but can't be true in a fallen world. We want them to be true, but it's, it actually derails us to pursue these things. I think there are two things that this, this uh, mentality of faith being a journey, I think it contradicts two things. Um, the first one, I want, I'm going to call them out, both of them. The first one is this, um, that in my faith, I can arrive. Even here on this earth, I can arrive. Once I have faith, I don't really have to fight anymore for holiness or health, obedience, truth, peace, joy, patience, goodness, self-control. Like once I believe in Jesus, like life should be good. And unfortunately, sometimes to get people in church, Christians will say that, you know, once you believe in Jesus, like God is going to pour out in all his blessings on you. And everybody like, oh, good. I don't have to worry about stuff anymore. And it's bunk. Bunk. 
what is true, and, and I can't remember who said it uh, or where I heard it, but what is true is that today is actually just the training ground for tomorrow. Every single day, every decision is and has been a formative event in our lives leading to today, ultimately leading to tomorrow. Every single experience since birth has been about getting us ready for where we are and where we're going. Every chapter, good and bad, is a part of the journey. There's this bigger picture that God is painting with the moments of your life. I got to experience that reality uh, viscerally, like, like just hit me in the face about, about mid-2000s. I went through this uh, personal growth retreat thing, um, trying to understand my call and how God has made me and where it is he's guiding me. And during that retreat, we got to do something that was formative, powerfully formative for me. It, this is it right here. A post-it note timeline is weird. It's like ridiculously not impressive. But it blew me away because what you do is you, with post-it notes, you just, you take these post-it notes and you fill in from, from the moment, your earliest memories all, in, all the way up until where you are today, you fill in the formative, powerful moments, good or bad, it doesn't matter, everything you can remember about what's gone on, how you've been developed in your life, and you write them down, you write them down, one per post-it note, and you just write them down, you write them down, write them down. And then you take all of those and then you put the bad ones on pink and you put the, the good ones on yellow, see? And then you arrange them chronologically in columns. And as you're arranging them in columns, what you start noticing is that there are these chapters in life, these, these seasons where God has been doing specific things and teaching specific lessons. And it just blew me away because what it revealed as I'm, as I'm unpacking this is I could see God's movement in my life before I knew him how he was shaping me, the challenges that I had to go through to, to build me up, that, that the call he had for my life today, he was working on from the very start. By the way, if you ever want to do that, it takes about an hour to an hour and a half. I would love to walk you through it. So much fun. Also, like, mind-blowing and a little bit like, oh, my goodness. So you got to be prayed up and ready for it because God's going to tell you something. And because I know that about today, I know that where I am today is going to lead me into tomorrow and that I have not arrived, not arrived until I arrive in glory. But today... I'm in process. And I think that's one deception we like to believe. We like to believe we can arrive, like we've got it figured out and things can be settled. But <laughs> if you're breathing and you're on this planet, it's not settled until it's settled. Lie number two, and this one I think is even more dangerous. Faith's journey confronts something else. And I wanna call it, I'm gonna call it the deception of destination. What does that mean? Uh, I think there is an inherent desire in all people to know how things are gonna end. 
any particular circumstance, any particular day, any particular kind of thing that's happening. We want to know how it's going to end. We want to know what the end goal is. We want to know what the destination is because then we know how to work for it. We know how to make it happen. You know, we, we decide this is how I want things to be. And so we choose the path or we choose the events or we choose the experiences to make sure that that outcome is achieved. And we do it every day. We do it in little ways. We do it in big ways. We write outcomes, we write destinations, even though we really can't necessarily control them, we still do it. And we do it in little ways. For instance, um, when I got into my truck this morning, I assumed I would not have a flat tire today. And I didn't. But I have in the past. I assumed I wasn't going to have a flat tire then. I also, uh, you know, when I go into meetings, you know, that meeting at work is going to go exactly as I expected. My wife will agree with me on how we're supposed to spend our tax refund. <laughs> that, that key item, I was making jambalaya this weekend, that key stuff that I needed, they, of course they're going to have andouille sausage at Meyer, and I went in there, and for a while I couldn't find it. I did find it, but I assumed Meyer was going to have exactly what I needed to make that recipe. Or I, that guy sitting at that intersection, of course, he sees me, there's no way he's going to pull out in front of me. Little things. We're always writing destinations. We're always assuming how things are going to end up. Always, always. Little things. It's not just little things. We do this in big ways, too. We write little destinations for ourselves. I actually thought I was going to get married someday. And I did. I also thought I was going to have six kids. <laughs> no. <laughs> After two, we knew better than that. Oh, by the way, if you've had more than two kids, God bless you. <laughs> At one point, I truly, truly believed I was going to be a lawyer making six figures. Nope, nope. What about this one? You hear this one a lot. I can't wait to have kids, and both of my parents will be around to see them and meet all of my children. Or, there's no way I'm going to give up to this disease. This disease is not going to take my life. Of course, we do it in negative ways, too. There's no way I can beat this disease. I, just, I guess I should just give up. We write the outcomes in our heads, with our expectations, with our hearts. We convince ourselves of the destination How many different scripts have I written about my life? How many different scripts don't we all write for our lives? Destinations that we plan on and expect. Destinations that we almost require. And, and so many times we're not even aware that we've written them until they don't or can't come true. And then there's the curveball, and it doesn't happen the way we thought, and our entire world is thrown into disarray, and then we are furious with people and with life and with God? Because it's not what I planned. But what's actually happened in that? What actually did happen? Well, we've been sold a lie that the outcome can be determined, that the destination is set, that we can count on it, that we deserve it. Paul really did want to go to Spain. 
And God said no. Our, our own expectations become our greatest obstacles, but we're the ones that came up with them. We're the origins of those things that drive us the most crazy. We believe the deception of destination rather than live in the adventure of the journey. And I love, I, so I'm not the first one to come up with this idea. James, in chapter 4 of the book of James, talks about this particularly. Listen to what James says about this very issue. James chapter 4, starting at verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? What causes the, the, the disarray and the stirring up of your hearts? Don't they come from your desires, from your expectations, from the things that battle within you? You desire. You expect. You create a destination, but you don't get it. And so you kill. You covet certain things or certain ways of things happening, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and you fight. And then, and then he goes on to say, just right after this, stop it. Submit yourselves to God. Come near to him and he will come near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up, which is a fancy way of saying, folks, let God be in control of your life. Stop trying to make it be what you think it should be. Yes, yes, yes. Ask him for what you want. Ask him for what you need. Ask him for what you are passionate about. Yes, ask him. But hold on to those dreams with open hands. And then he ends, chapter 4 actually ends with the, these words, and I'm going to paraphrase them, okay? Folks, stop pinning your hopes on tomorrow being better. Or, or the way, uh, a way that we can deceive ourselves by saying, you know, as soon as, as this hard thing is done, or as soon as I get past this hump, then it's going to be okay, and I'll be able to get onto this really actually next great thing. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. If you fill your vision with the expectations of someday destinations, you're being arrogant and boastful. Today's the day you have. Do the good you're supposed to do in it today. Do it now. You'll find out what tomorrow's bringing when it gets here. And here's, here's why I think we want to believe that lie about arriving, that deception of destination. It, I think we love it. We really want it so much because it means we can have life on our terms. It means we can have the outcomes we desire, that, there, that there's more to life than what is. But how much... Discontent comes with that. We, we, we convince ourselves now that we've set a destination, now it's my job to make it happen. And, and then what that means is that, that how we feel about stuff has the authority in our lives, where we want to go, what we want is the most vital thing. That is what will fulfill me in my life uh, achievement, outcomes, preferences, destinations are the most important thing. And because it is, that actually then we convince ourselves. It gives us permission to decide our own futures. We walk paths of destruction because they are justified because it tells us, helps us get where we want to go. 
It's the lie of the ends justifies the means. The problem is, is if we're actually supposed to follow Jesus, if we're called to follow Jesus, that only leads to misery. Here's a little nugget of wisdom literature for you from the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 14. When times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. I think people have been wrestling with this for a long time. And the only way to actual peace, the only way to actual joy, the only way to actual fulfillment is when we thirst only for the living water. If you actually know the one who's talking to you, you would ask him and he will give you living water. Or when we hunger only for the bread of life, I am the living bread come down from heaven, Jesus said. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And rather than pursuing anything else, anything that we think would feed us, anything else we think would make us happy, anything else we think would handle that thirst in us, to know everything else lets us down. Everything else except Jesus. And our challenge, the goal of life, honestly, this mentality, this value to adopt is to walk the faith, the journey of faith with him and let him be our true treasure. That's what we mean when we say faith is a journey. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your encouragement. And thank you for being everything we need. Help us in our hopes, in our dreams, in the things that we do, in the things we want to see done. Help us to lay them down at the foot of the cross, to hang on to them loosely, and to, to join you in this journey of faith. Reveal to us your plans and give us the courage to, I don't know, enjoy the adventure for your glory. And in your name we pray, amen.